from the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez, America's favorite late night talk program, featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Welcome to the program. It's Tuesday night. There's a lot going on. If you want to join the program, feel free, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. And Emmer is out, right? Tom Emmer um, wins the Republican nomination for House Speaker and drops out hours later uh, after he was torched uh, as a rhino by Donald Trump. And at least that's how I saw it go down. Maybe you see it differently. Uh, but according to uh, Daily Caller, uh, House Majority Whip Tom Emmer dropped out um, just, I don't know, a couple of hours right after uh, Trump uh, beat him up, called him a rhino on Truth <laughs> Social. And uh, Republicans were voting by secret ballot until they were able to get to a candidate who received a simple majority of the conference votes. And after each round of those votes, the member who received the lowest number of votes was eliminated. Candidates uh, that were running had the option to drop out before each round of votes if they felt they didn't have enough support. 109 votes were needed to win. Before the first round, there were seven uh, Republicans running for speaker. Tom Emmer, Mike Johnson, Byron Donalds, Kevin Hearn, Austin Scott, Jack Bergman, and Pete Sessions. Sessions received the lowest amount of votes during the first round of votes and dropped out. Bergman dropped out after the second round of votes because he received uh, the least amount of votes in that round. After the third round, Scott received the least amount of votes and dropped out of the race. Makes sense so far. After the fourth vote, Hearn dropped out of the the race as well, um, getting the least. And then Donald's voluntarily dropped out. Uh, Emmer secured the majority of votes during the fifth vote. Now, House Judiciary Chair Jim Jordan was voted out of the race for Speaker on Friday after failing to receive the necessary votes on three separate ballots. Jordan lost in a secret ballot vote, 86 to 112. Now, you've got Emmer winning it, and then hours later, um, Trump says, he's a rhino, I don't know him very well, and, and a couple of other choice things. There's a lot of great people running, and then Emmer's out. Uh, so it makes me think, you know, again, back to my conversation, my my Cuban friend, he who told me anything Trump touches, uh, it, it goes um, it goes awry. He's saying that Trump doesn't have uh, any um, coattails. I'd say I, I beg to differ because here you have Trump just merely putting out one one statement on Truth Social and Emmer's out. Now, I don't know what the. Um, if one one is related to the other, but I can't. I can only suspect that they are, because how could you not, right? I mean, it seems clear as day to me. So we're going to get more in depth on the uh, House Speaker race in a little bit because we're kind of back at square one with uh, nobody having secured the nomination, and uh, it's definitely not a good look. I mean, listen, it is the process, but not a good look. We have to kind of really 
really just take uh, inventory and somebody needs to stand up and say, listen, pull it together, guys. <laughs> pull it together. Let's go. Oh, boy. Anyway, uh, additionally, internationally, here we go. Uh, we got Hamas rockets targeting Tel Aviv. And now Syria has joined in the uh, festivities. Listen to this. And this is from the Jerusalem Post. Um, there were rockets that came from the Syrian army, army, excuse me, uh, including um, mortar launchers, etc. And Israel hit them right back. IDF spokesperson said that the. Let's see. I don't want to get into the to the weeds here. Da 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 da. Armored brigade. Blah blah blah. All right. Well, bottom line here is they got hit with a couple of rockets. They hit them back with a couple of rockets. And things seem to be intensifying. And then you've got the report that I mentioned a couple of days ago, all right, which was that there are a number of U.S. military installations or other international military installations where there are U.S. soldiers, and those have been hit. So it doesn't seem like anything's getting better, right? Things are getting worse. Uh, the Israelis are somewhat indefinitely paused on their ground assault as there's 222 I believe is the number of hostages that are out there not not a good not a good thing and in my opinion the, the longer that they take and I, I appreciate and respect the restraint that's being displayed here by the Israelis I do however the other side of that same coin um, where we can complement one's restraint is the fact that Every day, every hour, every week that goes by where there's less action taken is more and more time for the enemy, uh, the Islamic Jihad, Hamas, to rig booby traps, to create a, a, a counteroffensive against the Israelis that would benefit Hamas, right? And when we hear from the women that were released, the hostages, they're saying this is a very elaborate web of tunnels that's running uh, beneath Gaza. So I can't help but wonder and think, man, we're giving them all this time. First, Biden goes in and calls a timeout. Then you've got uh, th these days to come and they're releasing hostages. And I guess as long as they're releasing hostages and they're able to, to spin it however they want to spin it, then, uh, of course, we're in a situation where they can do um, whatever they want because they've got time on their side. So I don't know how this is going to play out. Um, my hope is that we could minimize this as best as possible. But let's see. Oh, we got some breaking news here. Breaking news. Let's see. I'm going to give you a House GOP now gives the nomination to Mike Johnson after Emmer has dropped out. House Republicans nominated Mike Johnson, a Republican from Louisiana, for speaker. Uh, oh, let's see. An hour ago? Nope. 47 minutes ago. 15 minutes ago. There we go. For speaker, uh, making him the fourth GOP uh, congressman to win the conference's uh, nomination. It's the second nominee nomination uh, within a day after uh, majority whip Emmer, can't even say that, dropped out of the running amid uh, the GOP opposition. Johnson's nomination capped off the end of a whirlwind day. Yeah, tell me about it. We can barely keep up with this. All right, so... Now we've got Mike Johnson. Mike Johnson is now uh, in the running. 
I don't know. I'm taking bets. You guys let me know if you're with me on this. I'm taking bets that this may not last. I don't think he gets through and, and becomes speaker. That's just my thought. Uh, early in the day, Johnson came in second to Emmer, nominating uh, in in the secret ballot and then uh, in the rest of the nominating vote, which spanned five ballots. And now Congress is, or at least Republican congressmen, have come back to start the process anew with Johnson beating out four other candidates for the job. Johnson's 51 years old. He's been the House GOP's vice chair, a junior leadership position since 2021. He's also a former chairman of the Republican Study Committee, and that's the largest conservative caucus in the House. Other candidates in the mix were Byron Donalds, who I think would make an excellent speaker. Uh, uh, He's also with the Freedom Caucus. And let's see, we've got Mark Green from Tennessee, chair of the House Homeland Security Committee, and Freedom Caucus member Chuck Fleischman, another Republican from Tennessee, as well as uh, Roger Williams. So let's see what happens here. Let's see if he can get the votes. I mean, I can't imagine if Jim Jordan can get the votes. I don't see how Mike Johnson's going to get the votes unless everybody's like, hey, you know what? I'm tired. <laughs> I'm tired of having this conversation. So we're going to go ahead and uh, we're going to stick with Mike Johnson. We'll see. I wish him the best and we're going to invite him on the program. Let's see if he's got time to make it. And I'm pretty sure he's going to be on the Hill whipping up votes and trying to make sure he wins. Uh, but that's the the latest on the breaking news. Trust me, I doubt you've heard that one anywhere else. That happened 15 minutes ago. So there you have it. Mike Johnson is now the nominee. Emmer's out. Mike Johnson is in. This is tough to, to, to get your arms around. And we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about the need for, for men to be men, uh, what they like to call toxic masculinity. We're going to hear about that in a little bit as well. And uh, more talk on, on this topic as well. So keep it locked right here. I am Rich Valdez. I'm with you till 1 a.m., keeping you company most of the evening. Phone number again, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. And I want to talk about the House Speaker race. I want to talk about uh, some of the polling that's out there. I mean, there's so much to discuss. And uh, one of the best out there in the polling business is uh, John McLaughlin. He's a CEO and partner at McLaughlin Associates uh, polling firm. And uh, plenty to talk about, whether it's uh, New York voters opposing the Democrats' attempts to gerrymander congressional districts that are going to push out Republicans, uh, or this breaking news that we have now with Tom Emmer um, being out of the uh, nomination that he won hours ago, and now uh, Mike Johnson being in. (laughs) It's tough to keep uh, our hands around this stuff, but... uh, Let's bring in uh, John McLaughlin. Welcome back, sir. Hello. Great to be with you again. Thank you. I appreciate it. You bet. My pleasure. So, John, tell me, um, what do you make of this uh, with with respect to the speaker's race? Uh, It's it's here. It's there. It's all over the place. 
Um, Emmer is out. Mike Johnson's just nominated about 15 or 20 minutes ago. Um, what, what do you make of all this? Well, until the Republicans nominate a new speaker or go back to Kevin McCarthy, whatever they choose, the only one winning right now is Hakeem Jeffries. And Hakeem Jeffries, he, you know, I mean, when Pelosi was the speaker, she had very strong rules where the majority of their majority caucus ran the House. And she ran it to the point of, remember the January 6th committee they had? They didn't even allow Trump Republicans on the committee. They only had, right. you know, two anti-Trump Republicans and they had a hearings and, but you know, the, the minority had no power. And so now they know that right now, you know, Republicans are effectively probing uh, Joe Biden's family finances and they found millions of dollars of what looks like alleged bribes from foreign governments and foreign nationals and, you know, checks to uh, all sorts of family members and wires and LLCs. And, uh, you know, that's, that's really disturbing for the Democrats because, uh, you know, if it's if it's all true and all the discovery that they're finding, uh, you know, the president is compromised because he's been bribed. And, uh, you know, so they want that shut down and they also want to keep spending without any regard to uh, without any regard to inflation. Uh, they don't want to shut down the border where they have, you know, millions, record millions of illegal uh, immigrants entering the country. Uh, you know, they want to try to put cashless bail. They want to try to weaken democracy and weaken voter ID throughout the country. So they would really like to regain the House, and they're only four seats away from it. So if the Republicans don't agree on, you know, who the new speaker is, the Democrats are in control. and They're in the driver's seat. They're stifling our agenda. And the sad part is, like last month, because seven out of ten voters say the country's on the wrong track. They say the they say the uh, uh, economy's getting worse, not better, 67-25. They don't like Bidenomics. Uh, it's a failure. And people are really distressed about a lot of things. And now you have international crisis where you've got a war in Ukraine that Biden can't stop. You now have our closest ally in the Middle East under siege from not just uh, Hamas terrorists, but also from Iranian-backed Hezbollah and the threat of Iran entering the war, and, you know, and they may have nuclear weapons. So, uh, so the country's really, there's a lot of anxiety out there. Things are on the wrong track. Uh, the generic vote for the Republicans, uh, you know, they had a, uh, in our last national poll, it was higher than the margin that they had in the last national popular vote, where the Republicans for Congress uh, were leading the Democrats 48 to 41. And, you know, Trump's leading Biden. In every published poll, Trump's leading Biden. In our last poll, he was leading Biden 47-43. If it was a three-way or 40 or four-way race, Trump was still winning. So the Democrats are desperate to get back into power. And I had a late friend, Pat Cadell, who was Jimmy Carter's pollster, who was a Democrat, who later advised President Trump. And, and uh, Pat was great because he said the Democrats are the crooked party and the Republicans are the stupid party. And right now we're being stupid at a time where the country can't afford it. We need a speaker and we need to push back with our own Republican agenda. You know, John McLaughlin, that's um, it's great analysis. And I agree with you. If if we don't get this thing figured out soon, there's only one winner and it's the Democrats. I, I think you're 100 percent right with that. You also mentioned that our, our biggest ally, Israel, is is, um, you know, facing, you know, the biggest uh, fight they've faced in a long time. And and the biggest death toll they've seen since the Holocaust. 
And and this is one of those things where it makes you think. All of this stuff, in my opinion, um, uh, to quote the late Bob Grant, uh, you know, it's all going to hell in a handbasket. And yeah. and I think, you know, Americans seem to be, um, based on other polls I've seen, sort of uh, on board. They're like, okay, you yeah, know, the terrorists are the bad guys. Um, Israel's defending itself. But yet there's, there's I, I forget which poll I'm looking at here. That says that there's um, the numbers are increasing for the support for Hamas. H- have you seen any uh, of these surveys? Uh, well, the one I saw over the weekend that was that I would give credibility to is the Harvard Harvard Harris poll that uh, yeah Mark Harvard Harris makes. that's the one yeah right and Mark is uh, Mark is Hillary Clinton's uh, old pollster and. He's very reputable, reputable, and he he does a very good job scientifically when you look at the poll. And, you know, in the reality of that poll is, and by the way, full disclosure, just like I work for Donald Trump and we're working for the Trump 2024 campaign, I have worked since 2003 for BB Netanyahu in most of his elections. And last year, I was in Israel quite often as I was commuting back and forth between the United States and Israel during the elections. And uh, I worked for BB, and uh, you know BB was, you know they wanted BB back in there because the alternative was a government was a government that included the Muslim Brotherhood party in a coalition against him, and Israelis don't like the Muslim Brotherhood party because they, they were funding in effect. They knew that they were spending billions of dollars to the NGOs that were in effect funding terrorism. So that government collapsed. BB went back into office. And now, you know, Bibi's there, and we look at, Americans look at his, you know, Israel's enemies, and it's not just about Bibi, because Bibi in that Harvard-Harris poll was two-to-one popular, uh, 38 to 23, because he's the leader of Israel. Right. But Israel was favorable 59 to 21, and that's very similar numbers to what we've had in the past. But what you're talking about is the growing unfavorable, particularly with anti-Semitic Democrats. Where it's in the Democratic Party, uh, whether it's Elon Omar or whether it's Rashida Tlaib, um, they promote terrorism. You have Barack Obama himself, the former president, talking oh. about talking about you know. Gen- that, that you know John, hold that thought so that we. I don't want to gloss over it, folks. We're on with John McLaughlin. He's a partner at McLaughlin Associates polling firm. He represents Trump. He represents Netanyahu, and he's giving uh, his insight on this Harvard Harris poll. And why there is a growing number of 18 to 24-year-olds that believe that Hamas are the good guys. That's crazy. We're coming back to that and more. Don't move a muscle with John McLaughlin and me, Rich Valdez. Named one of the best personal finance podcasts, The Stacking Benjamin Show with Joe and his friends makes financial literacy fun. I got an email today from the LenPenzo.com HR department. I find oh. it really interesting. I'm an employee of one at this company, so but somebody from the HR department sent me an email telling me that I had a raise. If I just opened the attachment, I could see how much my raise was. Make sure you click on the links that are in there, too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can't wait. This is I'm excited. Find out more by searching the Stacking Benjamins podcast wherever you listen. 
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Title Transference aired October 27, 2004. Director James Marshall, writers Todd Slavkin, Darren Swimmer. I really like this episode, and I'm surprised that you don't like it as much as you thought you did. I actually respect your opinion more than I respect my own in general. (laughs) (laughs) When you say things are good and I check them out, they are. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen. America, welcome back. We're on with John McLaughlin, pollster, uh, works with President Trump, works with uh, the Netanyahu campaign, and uh, we're discussing this Harvard-Harris poll, and we're going to move on to some other topics, but I just wanted to put a pin in this uh, part of it, where there's a growing number, um, 26% of the youngest age group, which was 18 to 24, believes the solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is should be ended and given Hamas all of Gaza is basically <laughs> what they think should happen. And uh, it's it's just insane to me that we have a, a pro-Hamas wing of the country, John McLaughlin. Well, Hamas is a, is a violent terrorist organization, and uh, you can't have them on the border with Israel. It's just, and, and they're enemies in the United States. And, and what they just, the atrocities they committed in Israel, I mean, that's an act of war. And, uh, you know, what's amazing is the United States here, you've got radical socialists who are rewriting history, who are trying to, because, you know, in their schools over there, uh, you know, they don't recognize uh, Israel's right to exist among the, Pal- you know, the Palestinians. And they, you know, they have a map and it's, there's no Israel on it. It's, uh, you know, they just ignore, you know, thousands of years of biblical history and, and they, they believe that, you know, the Jewish people have no right to, you know, their ancient homeland. So, uh, um, so you know, they, they through terrorism, they want to wipe them out. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's something that we the civilized world, we can't let them do this because it's it, if they can do this to Israel, that's just an hors d'oeuvre on their way to wiping out democracy and freedom in the United States. And, you know, it's it's what we what we saw happen in 9/11 in the United States here in New York where we lost friends and family. It's the same thing happening in Israel right now, and uh, you know I know a lot of people over there, and and Israel is under siege. And I don't think Americans would have ever stood for the kind of attack that just happened, uh, you know, in Israel. And for years now they've been under rocket attack that Iran provides these rockets to uh, you know Hamas terrorists. And and crazy part is. Joe Biden rolled back the sanctions that Donald Trump had on Iran. Iran was going bankrupt, and he allowed the sanctions to roll back. He won't enforce them. That Iran going from selling a few billion dollars worth of oil a year to now 50 billion or so of oil every year. We're, we're giving them billions of dollars for hostages. I mean, this is, but Joe Biden is like Neville Chamberlain for the 21st century. I mean, it's unbelievable what he's doing to try to appease our enemies. And the dangerous part is you're, he's, he's trying to appease people who are, who are totally, you know, radical that are our enemies that are attacking American soldiers right now in Iraq and other places in the world. And, you know, they, 
they could have nuclear weapons. So this is a really unique, unique and scary time in our history that, you know, when Donald Trump was there for four years, they wouldn't have done this. They were afraid of him. And when they tried to take uh, our embassy in Baghdad, Trump sent in 3,000 soldiers to protect it. So, so Soleimani and the Quds Force from Iran weren't going to have a replay of what went on with Jimmy Carter and uh, uh, the United States where they took our embassy in Tehran. We weren't going to let them do that in Baghdad. And and uh, their general, Soleimani, ended up you know getting wiped out because he was, he was going to launch an insurrection against the United States. So... You know, if Joe Biden keeps on letting them shoot our soldiers and, and our ships and, and, you know, attacking us, it's going to be open game on the, on the United States by terrorists. And God knows how many, you know, terrorist cells and enemies have come over the open border uh, since the Biden administration, you know, stopped enforcing uh, and securing the border. So it's a dangerous time. It's, uh, and it's not just for Israel, it's for the United States. And what's scary is when you look at these polls, you know, the, the fact that the anti-Israel opinion and the pro-terrorist opinion is being held by university-educated uh, young Americans or young people in our country, it's, it's, it's a scary thing because, you know, it's, it's, you know it's, it's, it's unpatriotic and it's anti-Semitic and it's, it really doesn't, you know, it doesn't, they don't share our values when they're teaching our young people this. You know, John McLaughlin, uh, everything you've mentioned so far to me seems like it could have been avoided if Joe Biden would have, A, maintained the policies Trump left in place when he left, or B, just showed some semblance of leadership and strength. And it's the weakness that he's portraying that's affecting every area of this. You mentioned Bidenomics. You mentioned the border. You mentioned um, the the fact that we have instability globally with um, the war in Ukraine, the, now the war in um, in the Middle East. And of course, there's always the, the constant tensions of a potential uh, war between uh, China and and Taiwan. And mm-hmm. I can't help but think um, with all the polling you do, how, how do Americans weigh in on this? Are there numbers uh, as to how badly Biden's doing? I know he just hit a new low last week, a 58 percent disapproval rating, and it was even higher in certain areas like uh, the economy. Uh, but is there anything more recent or anything else that uh, we, we could look at that's measuring how badly Joe Biden's doing? Well, there were polls this weekend. I mean, we had, you know, the, before the uh, debacle. And, I, and by the way, Donald Trump has been ahead in the national popular vote over Joe Biden since September of 21. And that was the moment when he surrendered Afghanistan, when he fled. And and it was the first time in American history where a president actually surrendered and surrendered a country. Uh, uh, to our enemy, to terrorist enemies. And, uh, you know, the, it, it's, it was a green light uh, to, to all our enemies, whether it was Putin and Russia to attack Ukraine, to Hamas and Iran to attack Israel. Uh, it's a green light for China. And, and fortunately, Japan, I think, is trying to face down China. But, you know, our allies in, in NATO and Europe are on their own. And Trump, when he was president, he tried, tried to strengthen NATO by getting them to spend more. He tried to and he tried to keep the world at peace by making sure our enemies, whether it was North Korea, whether it was Iran, whether it was uh, uh, Russia, they they not only respected us, but they feared us. And it's it's a scary world when, you know, the Pax Americana no longer stands. And the other part about the Biden administration is he's not just incompetent. He's corrupt. 
where we have a president who's been compromised because him and his family have taken millions of dollars from Burisma to get a prosecutor fired. He's taken tens of millions of dollars for the Biden-Penn Center, where our Secretary of State was making a million dollars a year, our current Secretary of State, uh, uh, Blinken, was making a million dollars a year running the Biden-Penn Center at the University of Pennsylvania that China was funding. And, uh, you know, now, and, and by the way, the minute he got elected president, they shut the thing down because they know it's nothing but, but, but a, a, you know, an influence scheme. And uh, he's compromised and he's corrupt. And it's come to the point where, just like they do in communist countries, he's trying to lock up his leading opponent because Donald Trump, when you talk about polls, Trump is leading in the average of, of national polls on the uh, Real Clear Politics average, not my polls, but polls we never let in in 2016 and 2020 because we were always going to win a battleground state electoral victory. Uh, but in these in these polls right now, Donald Trump is leading Joe Biden in the national popular votes, which means he would win by, with an electoral landslide. And uh, whether it was, you know, whether it was the uh, the messenger Harris X poll where Trump's beating him today. 4541 or whether it's uh uh you know and and Trump was still beating him with Kennedy and West in the in the race or the uh um you know or the uh, uh the whole real club politics average when you're looking mm-hmm. at Trump versus Biden uh it's Trump up by a point nationally in the popular vote and usually we underpoll in these polls cuz they're polls of registered voters not likely voters um right. but you have you know, the Harris poll that you had over the weekend, I mean, Trump was winning 52-48 with no undecideds. And the Emerson poll, 47-45. So, you know, that's that's the report card on Joe Biden. And to me, it's like, you know, those of us who remember Jimmy Carter, because, you know, I volunteered for Reagan in 76 to vote back then. Mm. I mean, you know, Reagan, they said he was too old. He was uh, too too radical, would get us into a war. And he was too conservative. And, you know, when Jimmy Carter failed, which took him four years, uh, you know, Reagan blew by him in October of, of, of uh, 1980. Here you've got a situation where Trump's ahead of Biden right now, and Biden's trying to put Trump in jail. And he's got all his Democrat, corrupt Democrat allies trying to, you know, not just put him in jail, uh, but they're also trying to bankrupt his, his business and his organization. So these are you know, very scary times because it's a real threat to democracy and it's a double standard of justice, what we've got going on here. So folks are on with John McLaughlin and straight ahead, we're going to talk about how New York voters are opposing the Democrats in their attempt to gerrymander congressional districts to, uh, to thwart Republican candidates. And that's a poll that, that has just come out as well. So we're going to talk about that with John McLaughlin, pollster to uh, President Trump and Netanyahu and many others. Uh, John McLaughlin, stick around. We're coming right back. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. This is America. This is night. This is Rich Valdez. So, John McLaughlin, you've got a new poll uh, that is showing how the uh, the group uh, Stop New York uh, Corruption has uh, commissioned to to measure the effects of gerrymandering. Tell us about that. 
We did the poll in September, September 10th, and the numbers haven't changed. It was state statewide poll, 600 uh, likely voters in New York. And what's what's gone on is you realize that back in 21, we had won three statewide referendums where the Democrats tried to make amendments to New York State, uh, the Constitution, and one of them was to change the redistricting commission. That was passed in a statewide referendum in 2014, where the state constitution basically says you can't um, you can't uh, uh, have political gerrymanders and and in the in redistricting you have to uh, you have to uh, uh, try to create competitive races and and um, and what so so what's gone on is. Last year, the state's highest court, which was dominated by Mario, not Mario, Andrew Cuomo appointees and Democrats, found that, you know, they were violating the state constitution. It was a political gerrymander because the Democrats had rewritten the congressional seats to try to drive the Republicans down to four seats. So the top court threw it out. They appointed a uh, they appointed a. Uh, uh, special master to redraw the lines, which they did. And uh, the seats were more competitive. So New Yorkers had their civil rights. They had their ability to to vote uh, in the election. And, uh, you know, the Republicans won 11 seats, not four, because the lines for different districts were made more competitive. And um, the Democrats, though, they didn't like that. So they're saying, even though the state constitution says that these lines should be in effect for 10 years because of the census. They are trying to change the courts and they're trying to, uh, uh, you know, they're trying to, they're suing to basically have the lines redrawn this year, even though they were done last, last year, that for next year's election, they want to have a new set of lines where they, you know, render the election, uh, less effective. So, or in, 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 basically to favor the Democrats and be, and what it was we when we asked them about it in the September survey and the New York Post wrote about it plus they'll have an editorial they put up an editorial today where the headline is uh, Kathy Hochul and Rowan Wilson's latest sleaze move to snub New York voters there are now members of that court that one of them has recused herself who is a more moderate the second one they forced out the chief justice who had ordered you know the the uh, redistrict the the special master to draw the lines and not the legislature. So in this poll, which was done unbiased and published and it's on the Stop New York Corruption, they put it out and they, they shared it with the press. In New York State's highest courts, they rejected uh, congressional districts approved by the Democratic legislature because they were partisan political gerrymander that was drawn to dis quote, drawn to disadvantage competition in favor of Democrats, end quote. The approver disapprove of redistricting by partisan political gerrymander. 10% approve, 72% of all New Yorkers disapprove. This is in a survey where half the voters are Democrat that represents a typical uh, New York state election. There was no difference between Democrats and Republicans. 73% of Republicans disapprove, 70% of Democrats, 74% of independents. And then when we asked them, you know, why they disapproved, they basically told us, 22% told us that it was, it was, you know, politics. It was 20% said it was unfair, not fair, and 19% it was anti uh, anti democratic and fraud and crime, uh, cheating and corruption were 16% of the responses. And uh, you know, when we asked them about, uh, you know, does partisan political gerrymandering lead to more corruption? 
They said it does, 78 to 7. They basically said uh, that partisan political gerrymandering takes away people's right to the civil right to choose their member of Congress in a competitive election. They agree with that 76 to 9. They basically, you know, it gives the power of the you know, party bosses to pick the candidates for Congress, 72 to 11. Uh, and 81 percent said it's flat out cheating. And so so New Yorkers really disapprove of this. And, you know, they want competitive elections. And the Democrats are trying to sneak this through through the courts without, you know, it's not an amendment because in the past, the, the there was a state, the state legislature passed, uh, you know, referendums to be on the ballot. And in 2014, you had a referendum approving of a redistricting commission that was supposed to be nonpartisan. In 21, it was reaffirmed on the ballot. And along with they threw out same day registration voting, they threw out because there is no voter ID in New York on the day you go vote. Um, they just take right. it for granted that you with your signature on a computer. And uh, uh, so New Yorkers, they they. They really think there's fraud and corruption out there. And, and the numbers uh, are staggering. I mean, when you look at them, yes. 72% reject the gerrymandering. 81% of voters viewed the politi- uh, the partisan political aspect uh, as cheating. I think that's right. that speaks volumes when you you know when right. you have um, 600 likely voters that say, no, yeah, I think this is cheating. I think yeah, that's statewide. remarkable. Yeah, yeah and statewide, and it's modeled, right. And it's modeled after, but, but what's, what's really important is People want to decide. They want to decide the election. They want their vote to count. They want right. to go out in November. And the Republicans may not win all these seats again. The Democrats may win it. But at least have an election where you have a choice, where it's not prearranged that just one party's going to win and there's only maybe four competitive seats out of the 26. Right. You know, now they've got. It's not just. It's not just 11 districts, but it's, there's 11 Republicans. But there's more seats that are competitive in New York. And, you know, if the Republicans don't get their act together, they'll lose seats. If the hopefully when they, hopefully up, when they get to Congress, they they'll vote for the speaker. Right. And not, not vote against whoever gets nominated, because we saw that happen with a handful of uh, Republican congressmen in New York. John McLaughlin, I'm out of time on this one, uh, but I, I want to thank you for being here. Let everybody know if they want to take a look at the poll, uh, what your website is and how they can follow you. They've put uh, the, the, it's up on the website on McLaughlinOnline.com. That's McLaughlinOnline.com, and uh, it's posted there. And it's the New York. It's the article. There was an article in the New York Post, and uh, tomorrow we'll put up the New York Post editorial that they followed up this poll with. Uh, and uh, if they want to follow me on on, uh, on Twitter or X or Truth Social, it's uh, at JMC LGHLN. So. Fantastic. Brother, I want to thank you for staying up late and breaking down all the numbers for us because uh, nobody does it like you do. John McLaughlin, everybody, you're a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot. I thank you, sir. Well, I like listening, and I'm also in my office working right now. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's, it's a break from work. So I appreciate right. it, brother. Thank yeah, the voters because they're the ones with these opinions. So uh, I just report them. So thank you. Good work. Folks, we're coming right back. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. America at Night with Rich Valdez. 
All right, America, we continue our conversation on masculinity. Is it toxic? Is it not? Uh, we're going to have a good conversation on that. I think that's always uh, something that comes up. You know, being a, a kid born to um, uh, parents that were born in Puerto Rico, I can tell you my dad was very macho. Matter of fact, that was my nickname growing up, macho. And, and of course, those are my pronouns. I identify as el macho. But seriously speaking, it's um, a cultural thing for, for many Hispanics to for men to be manly. And um, when, you, when you hear the thought of toxic masculinity, it makes you think, why is my culture toxic? What did I do to you? Anyway, we're going to talk about that and a lot more. We're going to keep politics at the forefront and your calls and more. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. Don't move a muscle. The show continues with me, Rich Valdez. Hi there. Sorry for the interruption, but are you enjoying this show on Google Podcasts? You should know that the Google Podcasts app is going away this spring. That's right, going away, gone, as in no longer available. You can still enjoy this show elsewhere, though. Try out Spotify or Amazon Music, or maybe TuneIn is more your style. Whatever app you switch to, be sure to follow so you never miss the next episode. And thanks for listening, wherever you listen. From the city that never sleeps. 17 miles from Madison Square Garden, New York City. It's America at Night with Rich Valdez. America's favorite late night talk program. Featuring interesting guests from around the world. And calls from across America. And now, here is your host, Rich Valdez. Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. And I want to get into a couple of things tonight, but of course, uh, some of the headlines that are out there. Uh, we've got Tom Emmer winning the Republican nomination for House Speaker, dropping out hours later. Uh, now we've got Congressman Mike Johnson, who's won the nomination, and we'll go into the the rounds of voting and see how that goes. So that's the, the latest on that will keep you up to speed uh, as to how that unfolds. Uh, honestly, it's, it's tough to give a play-by-play -play on this stuff because it's crazy. Uh, I also want to talk about what some of the, the folks that were held hostage in Gaza, what they revealed in some of the interviews that they've done. We're going to get to that in a moment. But I wanted to quickly talk about toxic masculinity because uh, there's a, a piece today uh, in uh, publication womensagenda.com. Listen to the headline. The federal government launches a three-year project to address toxic masculinity on social media. And it has a picture of the social media influencer, former kickboxing champion, Andrew Tate. <clears throat> and it says, uh, the federal government announced this three-year project to tackle the harmful messages of toxic masculinity on social media. Healthy Masculinity's trial project will receive $3.5 million to run both face-to-face -face and online presentations at schools, sporting clubs, and other community organizations to teach school-aged boys about respectful relationships 
not just with their peers, but also with themselves. Now, the first question I have here is school-aged boys. Who gets to determine what a school-aged boy is? I thought we didn't do that anymore. Huh, and interesting. Anyway, uh, starting with boys as young as five years old, the program aims to counteract dangerous gender stereotypes and messages of toxic masculinity that are circulated by online influencers like Andrew Tate. The funding is part of the $11.9 million First Action Plan Priorities Fund under the National Plan to End Violence Against Women and Children. So somehow being masculine, or what they like to call toxic masculinity, is somehow violence against women. The government hopes the three-year trial program will foster healthy relationships contributing to its goal to end violence against women in the next decade. Isn't that something? Now, listen, I'm not saying that we shouldn't aim or strive to limit uh, and even, I mean, it's a nice thing to say eradicate, to eliminate. But the reality is, imagine if the government came out and said, we're going to start a three-year program to end violence against humans. Wouldn't that sound silly? Do you think that spending three and a half million dollars through some Biden administration program would stop Hamas from bombing Israel? Do you think that spending three and a half million dollars uh, would get the gangs in Chicago to stop shooting each other? Do you think it's going to stop the looting that's shutting down big box and other retailers in San Francisco, New York, and elsewhere? How do you stop violence against humans? The reality is you can't, right? You can teach your children to be kind. You can teach um, everybody to, to follow the law, to say, hey, look, I don't really care what you believe, but the reality is you can't go around hurting people. You can't commit violence, acts of violence against other people. Now, last I checked, that's actually the case, right? I mean, there's, there's statutes locally, statewide, federally, Right. There's laws everywhere to say you're not allowed to be violent uh, against other people. Violence isn't condoned anywhere. So why is it that we bring in this notion of violence against women? Now, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be violence against women uh, or that there should. Right. Uh, I, I don't think we should have violence against anybody. My point is they, they word this and they couch it in this this funny floral language where they say it's 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 contributing to its goal to end violence against women in the next decade. How on earth will spending money? Now, somebody out there is saying, come on, Rich, there's no way you're that thick, that you're that dense. No way. I don't think that's the case. I don't believe that we can, we can try, and money can help to try to change the hearts and minds of people. And it's clear that's what the government wants to do. But the heart of a man, the heart of any human that wants to do bad things is very likely going to do those bad things because the law is there. And if we talk about natural law, you know, the Ten Commandments, don't kill, don't steal, etc. Those things are there. These are eternal truths. These are universal realities. Yet, it happens time and again because people become corrupted. Not everybody believes what you believe. And that's why we have laws. So whatever it is you believe, you still can't just act on your belief because there's rules, there's laws. There are boundaries in life that we have to adhere to. And I just think it's just fascinating to me.
<clears throat> that this is uh, going on. And again, this is not just in the United States. This is happening in Australia and other places. Um, and, and this particular story is out of Australia. So, and again, Australia is the place where they, they said, oh, we're going to end violence by getting rid of guns. And they haven't really gotten rid of guns. But anyway, the, um, the person that's in charge of this here is some minister of something or other. Let me see where we... The Minister for Social Service, Amanda Rishworth, uh, in Australia. She says, the project is a significant step towards the nation's plan to end family and domestic violence. So they believe that you can end family and domestic violence by spending $3.5 million to say that Andrew Tate is a bad guy. And again, I'm not defending Andrew Tate. I'm just saying I think this is silly. And the reason I think the way I do, and maybe you agree with me, but maybe you don't, is because I once worked in government. And I remember working on a proposal for a, an anti-poverty program. And one of the phrases in one of the mission statements we'd created was to eradicate poverty. And I remember seeing it and going, oh, that seems noble. And then I remember the person that was in charge of the unit I worked in, <clears throat> He came to me and he said, that's pretty strong language, you know? And I said, yeah, it seems like it. Uh, I said, it's a very noble goal. And he said, it's not a noble goal. It's stupid. And I said, it's stupid to end poverty? He said, no. He said, do you think you can end poverty with a government program? Do you think you can end poverty this way? And I, I, of course, I said, no, I don't. And he said, then why would we, we try to sell that to the people? Why would we ever try to commit to something that we know isn't a real thing? Because it's not the government that creates the poverty. In every case, people at different points in their life may live in poverty. Maybe while they're on the come up, working to their goal, maybe uh, maybe they had made it big and misspent their fortune. Maybe they never had anything to begin with. Individuals are individuals. They're just that. Everybody has a different path, a different lot in life. And it doesn't mean they can't turn it around. But to me, it does mean that you could try to teach people about financial literacy. You could try to teach young boys to be the best that they can be, young women to be the best that they can be. We should have all sorts of morality-infused education. But the idea that we're going to end violence against women by labeling masculinity as toxic, to me, is, is, a, is a fool's errand. But listen to what she said. She said, research shows that there are strong links between harmful forms of masculinity and the perpetration of violence against women. Now, I would submit to you that I think masculinity could be many things, um, the way one acts, the way one thinks, the way one reacts, but none of it in any form of masculinity includes violence against women. That is not violence. That is not masculinity. It's violence. And, and again, violence against other men, violence against a dog, violence against women. And I'm not trying to eliminate women from the occasion, uh, equation. I'm trying to, to highlight the A, unnecessary modification of words, uh, toxic masculinity. It shouldn't be called that, right? I mean, let's see. Uh, how, what, what other situations do we do these types of word games with? Where, you know, um, instead of saying you're a criminal... Oh, well, you're, you're a, a toxically law-abiding citizen, right? It just doesn't, it's oxymoronic to think that way. But she goes on. She says, educating boys about healthy masculinity 
and providing them with positive role models are important steps to ending cycles of violence. And again, I, I don't disagree with the statement that if you teach kids not to beat their girlfriends and, and that if they saw their dad beating their mom, they shouldn't beat women. I think that's all fair game. But we shouldn't call that toxic masculinity. I think that this term is erroneous. And I reject it out of hand. She goes on to say, fostering respect in young men is a prerequisite to creating a safer future for our next generation. Well, absolutely. Fostering respect in young women does the same thing. And to put the focus on young men as if they're the sole perpetrator of violence ever, uh, even if it's the majority of violence that's committed by men, um, you I have no problem with people addressing boys and trying to teach them to be men. And if, if they called it, um, you know, becoming a man. Great. Uh, so to me, it's somewhat of a, of a, a battle of semantics, but it's that same battle of semantics that gets into people's heads where then they think that if you have some sort of bravado, if you um, are an outdoorsman, if you're not an outdoorsman, if you like to do this or conduct yourself a certain way, that somehow your mannerisms, behaviors, or um, way of being is in itself toxic. And that may be true for an individual. They may be a toxic person in many different ways. But I, I would submit to you again, I don't think it's their masculinity that is toxic. It is them themselves. And, and that's the problem. We try to make a bad guy a scapegoat out of everything, out of a situation, out of whatever. Uh, recently, a friend of mine, uh, you know, I'm on a school board, and uh, another friend of mine who's on a different school board <clears throat> tells me they had a conversation about you know, keeping drugs out of schools and whatnot. And the conversation led to, you know, some people saying, well, we should definitely involve law enforcement if there's drugs on the school campus or whatnot. And others saying, no, 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 we, we want to have the discretion to not call law enforcement. And, and the debate became, well, why wouldn't you? And the response was, well, because students of color uh, have a disproportionately negative response to law enforcement. And when I heard that, I thought, hmm, that's an interesting thing because, you know, hypothetically speaking, one, um, one would think that the safety of a child has nothing to do with the child's race. If there's a, a kid that's involved with substance abuse or distributing a substance or anything like that, it has nothing to do with their race. So why on earth would we take their race into consideration in, in considering the discretion that one would use for a consequence or a reaction? But this is where we are because this wokeism, this anti-man, this anti-police um, rhetoric has entered so much of our culture. And here we are with the government of Australia and the Biden administration and others that are coming up with these crazy plans to thwart something that doesn't really exist by using something else that's probably just as fake and phony instead of addressing the real problem. Anyway, we'll continue that and uh, your calls on these topics straight ahead. 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833 833- 
4Valdez. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4Valdez. That's Valdez with an S. is America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, America, welcome back. We're talking about toxic masculinity and how eliminating toxic masculinity will end violence. I want to get your thoughts on this and everything else we're talking about. 833-482-5337, 833-4Valdez. Let's see, where do we go? Where do we go? Let's start in... Cleveland, Ohio, WNIR, and check in with Ethan. Go right ahead. Hey, how's it going? How's your night been? Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful. So I've got a a very uh, controversial opinion on the topic of violence in general. I don't think humanity will ever become a peaceful species when religion and spirituality and ideology are still a thing in our culture. Well, let me ask you this, Um, and I'm not saying those could be sources of things, but I'm looking at the news today. Husband of woman shot in busy Chicago shopping district says shooting was road rage. Do you think that the road rage person shot this lady in a fit of rage because of religion? No. Now, what I, while I agree with you that not all violence is religion-based as well, I do not think that I think it would be a good start, in my opinion, because of the differing of opinions and quite hostile differing of opinions that different religions can have against each other. um, It's a good start, in my opinion. Now, I understand that that won't ever happen, and I don't expect it to ever happen. But in order to reduce violence, you need to promote the understanding of others around you. And- I agree with that. I think we, we have to be, uh, there has to be a degree of tolerance that we have in life and respect for other people and respect for humankind, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and I, you've, you've um, prefaced your statement well by saying you don't think it'll happen. And the reality is, I don't think people, religion is not the source of those things. Uh, I would say in my time, I spent some time as a chaplain for a, a very busy police department, Newark, New Jersey. And I can tell you as, as in the work that I did as a police chaplain, there was lots of violence and zero of it in the, the years I, I did that um, had to do with religion. In fact, it was the religious community uh, where imams and rabbis and Catholic priests and uh, Christian ministers uh, would get together and serve in this community of, of uh, what they call the chaplain corps and respond to these homicides and, and, and other shootings that occurred in Newark and provide consolation to people and try to, to work with them and bring about peace. And oftentimes it was their efforts that brought about the, the biggest um, ceasefires in the city at the time that I was doing that. It, it's not religion in and of itself. It's an intolerance towards other people. 
just like I might disagree with somebody on politics, I don't really ever want to pick up a gun and shoot them or, or beat them up or whatever it is. It's a disagreement and there's plenty of disagreement, but you have to have an open mind about disagreement and say, look, you, you see things your way. I see things my way. Um, so I agree with you, but I disagree with the premise that if we got rid of religion, I mean, you can't get rid of religion. And I think you said that. So th that would not be the source. But I do think if we learn to be, I, the opposite might be true. If we all started to practice some tenets of a religion, you know, like loving God, loving people, love your fellow man, increase your level of forgiveness, I think we'd see a lot less violence that way. Ethan, thanks for the call. Coming right back, Rich Valdez. By the way, your ratings are up. Congratulations, somebody. It's always nice to check. I like to see, <laughs> even if they're friends, I like to see how are they doing? Are people listening, right? That's but right. You're, you're doing great. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, I want to continue our discussion regarding the House Speaker's race because, again, uh, things have been unfolding very quickly with uh, Tom Emmer winning the nomination, then a little bit afterwards, uh, a, a very stinging um, post from Truth Social from former President Trump comes out calling him a rhino, Republican in name only. And then uh, he says he's out. And then all of a sudden, I don't know, probably about an hour ago now, we've got Mike Johnson, a uh, congressman from uh, Louisiana, I believe, who has now got the nomination to go into the voting. And let's see how he fares. And I want to get into this topic because Again, uh, I've never been married to it. I think it's great to have this process. I love to see the process working. At the same time, I love to see a house that's functioning as well <laughs> with a speaker where we can take action. And as the world is burning around us and Europe is, is uh, ablaze with Ukraine and Russia and uh, Hamas is attacking Israel, uh, it would be nice to know that, that the Americans um, kind of have their ducks in a row and we can move forward. And that isn't the case right now. So, of course, the timing is never really good on these things. But uh, I want to get into this with the associate professor of political science at Tarleton State University, Dr. Nathaniel Cogley. Welcome, sir. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rich. Appreciate it. You bet. So um, what, what's your take on, on what's going on as this um, begins to change very rapidly with the House Speaker's race? Well, it's fun to watch when you asked me to do the show tonight. It was all about Tom Emmer, and now it's all about Mike Johnson. So, you know, everything keeps moving. Um, Republicans only have 221. There's not much space there um, to lose votes. And, um, you know, this is like Goldilocks. You know, she comes in for the porridge. Um, can't be too hot. Can't be too cold. It's got to be just right. And um, if we look at the Liberty scores um, done by conservative review on some of the people that have been put up prior, you know, Kevin McCarthy has got a 54 percent F. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, certainly we see some um, uh, America first conservatives not happy with with how he was handling the speakership. Steve Scalise, who was put up next, also has an F at 58 percent. Um now, Jim Jordan was then thrown up there, and he's got an A, 94%. So, you know, someone like me who actually wants to get this $1.7 deficit under control, 
is happy with the Jim Jordan, but he just might be too fiscally conservative for for this House of Representatives. Um, right. He he withdrew Tom Emmer with a D, and of course, um, upsetting. Uh, President Trump there trying to overplay his relationship with President Trump and, and President Trump outwhipped the whip on that one. And, and Emmer had to drop sure. out, but he's got the D. But here we go. Mike Johnson. This is a little more right in the middle. This is a little more not too hot, not too cold, not too conservative, not not uh, but still conservative. You know, so Mike Johnson's got a C at 74 percent. That's kind of about where you're going to need to be if you're going to bridge this two wings of the party together. The the fiscal, the America first conservatives, along with, uh, you know, the, the big spending Republicans that are still part of our party. And you got to kind of bridge that together. Um, Mike Johnson has already got more votes for the nomination than Scalise, Jim Jordan, Tom Emmer. Uh, he's got more than all of them. He got 128 in this uh, conference nomination vote, whereas Emmer had 117, Scalise had 113, and Jordan had 124. So he's already like uh, getting close. He's, he's not a lock. Um, this is still an uphill battle to bring these uh, wings together. But I do think Mike Johnson or someone like him who's positioned in the middle. Roger Williams is also in this new mix of five. He yeah. also has like a C rating. I'm actually in Roger Williams' district here. Uh, so I do think there's going to be someone to emerge here. This is just going to take time. And the closer we this goes on and we get to a no November 17th, where the continuing resolution runs to, the more pressure on the big, uh, you know, the deficit spenders to come up with something because they're going to need a speaker if they want to keep spending. Yeah, 100 percent. And this is something Bob Good often said uh, was that, you know, you need pressure. You need pressure to score a good deal because without the pressure, you don't really get where you got to go. Now, I'm with you in theory that you need somebody who everybody can agree on. Uh, however, I just feel like when you do that, you automatically alienate uh, a lot of the other guys that have an A score. Uh, you know, Matt Gates famously said anybody but McCarthy. And I think he's kind of stuck to his guns on that, that he hasn't really opposed anybody yet. But I see, right. I, I, I would sense that once the voting starts uh, for tomorrow uh, or whenever the next vote is going to be and they actually do the, you know, the first round of votes on that first ballot or the next ballot, um, I, I, I foresee some people standing up and, you know, I nominate Mickey Mouse, I nominate Trump, <laughs> I nominate McCarthy or, and, and diluting and when you only have four for, for the win, right? They need 217 to win. Uh, you have that buffer of, of, of four that you can lose um, and you get people throwing out these nominations for anybody but the person that they're trying to agree on. Uh, I, I feel like we're going to have a, a repeat of this. And ultimately, m my prediction is that Mike Johnson doesn't make it. I, I hope I'm, I'm wrong, honestly, just for the sake of the country that we can move forward. Uh, but I also think for the sake of the country, we need to move forward with the right person. Uh, if you had a crystal ball, what would you say um, happens with uh, Mike Johnson once he goes in uh, for the for the votes? Well, he's got a better shot than the previous ones. Now, he actually doesn't need 217, so I see that repeated all over the place. He needs a majority of the votes cast. So Democrats keep delivering 212 for Jeffries. He actually only needs 213 to have a majority vote as long as eight vote present, right? So there's a little bit of wiggle room there. 
that uh, as long as some Republican members don't vote for anyone at all, then that doesn't factor into the threshold needed here. So, I mean, if everyone's voting for someone, then he can only lose four to someone else. But if you got, uh, you know, four willing, eight willing to vote present, he only actually needs 213. And you actually saw Gates and some others in the first round end up voting present rather than vote for McCarthy at all. So uh, there is going to be some space here. Um, it's certainly an uphill battle, but someone like Johnson is just better positioned to maybe try to bridge the wings of the party or someone like him. I mean, they're not limited to him. There's quite a, a few names that might work. I just feel like this is going to get resolved, um, you know, sooner than later. And you see that when they lock into someone, you end up going through a lot more rounds than what, I mean, Jordan only went through three rounds, right? And Scalise mm -hmm. and, and Emmer backed out before any any rounds on the on the floor um when you had this in 1923 um they went nine rounds to push through the speaker back then and mccarthy went 15 rounds right so um once you get close and you got like a dozen holdouts and uh, you need to negotiate them with them make concessions but um you can lock in and and, and throw a dozen rounds together and the precedent would be you do get someone through but um you know uh, Mike Johnson would be an improvement for some people over McCarthy. So you'd have to look at this as maybe improving the situation in the speaker slot. But, you know, fiscal conservatives, uh, they're not new to being disappointed in D.C. So, you know, disappointment is also a precedent <laughs> if you're trying to get a one point seven trillion dollar deficit under control. So um, I've been disappointed before. So it, it wouldn't surprise me if we're disappointed again. You and me both. Now, Professor, what's your take on on the the Trump factor? Do you think that Emmer bailed out because of Trump? It seems to me like it was certainly the case, uh, but not necessarily so, right? Scalise also did it. Uh, do you think it was backroom conversations? Do you think it was Trump's statement saying, don't overplay your hand, I don't really know you that well? Um, what say you? Yeah, I remember McCarthy barely got through 15 rounds and he had Trump's endorsement, you know, so for for you to get these fiscally conservative reps on board, someone that they don't trust and someone that's going to put forward suspending the debt ceiling and continuing resolutions and the omnibuses, um, you know, it helped McCarthy that he had Trump's endorsement. Um, Emmer never had it. And Emmer, um, you know, Trump very clearly came out. At first, he was rather uh, neutral, and then he came out very clearly against Emmer, and that was the end of Emmer. He had no shot once uh, Trump pulled the support. Um, there, there's a lot of reps willing to support Trump on that. So, um, you know, Trump is the uh, likely nominee for 2024. He's the person fighting in the arena for a citizen agenda in this country, and I think um, Someone is going to need his support if they if they want to get to this at least 213 votes with eight present or, you know, 217 with everyone voting. You're going to need Trump behind that. I agree with you on that one. All right, folks, we're on with uh, Dr. Nathaniel Cogley. He's an associate professor of political science at Tarleton State University. And, Professor, uh, I'm going to take a quick pause right here. I want to come back and uh, throw a few different headlines at you in the political world to, to get your reaction to them. So stick with us. Folks, if you have a question you'd like to pick the professor's brain, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez.
America? This is Night. This is Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. All right, America, welcome back. Familia, well, um, the Republicans are on Capitol Hill and they're duking it out for the speakership. There's still the looming question of what is going on with Joe Biden, who I like to call Joe El Baboso Biden. And uh, there's a bunch of polling that's out that's not good. Just on Friday, I read a poll, 58% um, uh, disapproval, record-breaking. Then uh, there's another one today, Siena College. That was the CNBC survey. Then you got Siena College here, 52% unfavorable. Uh, then there's a, a third one here uh, with the latest migrant poll, uh, which says where Democrats are saying the illegal immigration is going to destroy the city of New York. And uh, this is in the New York Daily News, the New York Post. 84% of New Yorkers say that the state's migrant mess is a serious problem. And, and, uh, that, that's a high number. I don't think I've ever seen a, something that high uh, on a poll like this. So I want to dig into that a little bit. Uh, overall, Biden's um, unfavorability with Dr. Nathaniel Cogley. He's associate professor of political science at Tarleton State University. Professor, what what do you make of um, everything that's happening with Biden? He seems to think he's doing fantastic every time he's out there. And all the polls seem to suggest the opposite. Yeah, some polls I was looking at a couple weeks ago. Um, there, you know, there's scandals with with Hunter Biden and all that things. But really, mm-hmm. um, Biden's age, his frailty, is really starting to resonate with just average voters who maybe casually pay attention to politics. And even in the Democratic Party, many Democrats think he's too old. And if they don't say it's age exactly, they say something related to it. You know, his competence, his energy. Um, you know, something as as his kind of his uh, job performance abilities decline. So he's got, and that problem isn't going to address itself. It's going to continue to get worse here. So I do think they they do have a, a real problem here in terms of the Biden candidacy. You know, Kamala Harris is also never. Um, you know, pulled well as a presidential candidate. And so, yeah, the Democrats certainly have uh, a challenge here going forward in terms of putting uh, a viable, robust ticket together. But um, I'm sure President Biden doesn't see it that way. I think he, he thinks he's the man for the job. So um, he's continuing to run and he's running until he's not. You know, age gives him a good reason to back out at some point. And he doesn't even need to serve the four years. Um, you know, it, as long as he wins, they lock in the four years, regardless of whether or not it's him to complete it. But they definitely have an electability issue here with Joe Biden um, that's not going to you know, resolve itself. The age factor is going to get worse. Combine that with the scandals and the inflation. And, yeah, he, he's got an electability challenge. For sure. Now, when I look at this and – and you cited a few things that are, I think, are really good points. Should uh, and again, this is, um, you know, some some analysis here, um, um, hypotheticals. Do you think if if he doesn't run again, it's just him saying, "Hey, look, uh, you know, um, I'm not running anymore," and he decides to, you know, I'm going to spend more time with Hunter, 
Or is it something <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> your hunter needs me. Or is it something like, um, uh, we're going to go to the convention and there'll be a contested convention. Um, how do you think it plays out? Oh, if, if Joe Biden wants to exit this race, you know, age uh, and health, uh, give him a good out. I mean, it may be legit, too. I mean, um, you know, Biden is over 80, he's 81, he's, he's going to get older from here. And there could be a legit health reason where he just can't do it anymore. But it, it wouldn't be hard to identify a reason if he was looking for one. And uh, there's still time on the Democratic side to pull together a nominee. They certainly have, you know, senators and governors and all sorts of things to work through. And Kamala Harris is vice president. But, um, yeah, the, the sooner the better. But um, he's in it until he's not. You know, it just it just wouldn't totally 100 percent surprise me if he pulls out here at some point. And I think, you know, in 2020, the powers that be in the Democratic Party um, weren't originally on board. But at some point they thought he was the best vehicle and, and they drove him into this term. But um, th some of them are probably wondering if he is indeed the best vehicle this time. And certainly Joe Biden thinks he's the best vehicle. But uh, I'm, I bet there's some second guessing behind the scenes. All right, Professor Nathaniel Cogley, hang on one more uh, one more break with us. Uh, there's uh, an article in The Hill that says Biden won't file for the New Hampshire Democrat primary. I want to get your take on that And uh, before we wrap it up straight ahead. Folks, uh, we're on with uh, Dr. Nathaniel Cogley, professor of political science, and we're coming right back. Don't move a muscle. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. I want to listen to you, Rich, all the time. America at Night with Rich Valdez. All right, amigos, welcome back. We continue our conversation as we wrap up with uh, Professor Nathaniel Cogley. And, Professor, I want to bring your attention to this. It's uh, an article in The Hill. Biden won't file for New Hampshire Democrat primary, um, citing um, rules from the DNC saying they do not want... Um, to place candidates' names on the ballot, whatever that means. Uh, it sounds like they're rewriting the rules for the 2024 Democrat nomination um, to make it, I guess, easier for Biden to run, uh, from what I can surmise. Um, what are your thoughts? Is this a signal that Biden's definitely pulling out? Well, uh, we have a tradition where Iowa was the first caucus and New Hampshire was the first primary, and certainly those states liked being first in these presidential nomination contests. If you remember back in um, 2020 cycle, um, Biden lost Iowa and then he lost New Hampshire. Pete Buttigieg actually won both of those. And then Biden did not win the Nevada caucus as well. And the first state that Biden won was South Carolina. Uh, Representative Clyburn helped him win that. And then you saw everything coming together for Biden right before Super Tuesday. Now, what's interesting here is, is Biden himself has proposed to um, drop New Hampshire as the first primary and to make South Carolina, a state he won, uh, the first. And um, maybe South Carolina likes that, but certainly New Hampshire feels like they should be first. And New Hampshire actually has a clause in their 
state constitution that they have to be first and they have to be a week before any others. So here's the state of New Hampshire saying, no, you're not going to bump us down the schedule. We're going to go a week ahead of South Carolina, whatever that is. And the Democratic Party is telling New Hampshire, well, we just might not count your delegates. And so um, Biden seems to be holding that line pretty hard with New Hampshire. It's just kind of curious how this will play in New Hampshire, which, you know, wasn't that close, around 7%, but it's close enough to pay attention to, and it's for electoral votes. So will the Democrats snubbing New Hampshire in the calendar cycle for the primaries actually affect them in the general? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious to pay attention and find out. Me too. Professor Nathaniel Cogley, thanks for being with us. We appreciate your insight. You are a gentleman, a scholar, and a patriot, and I appreciate you staying up late with us. Thanks so much, Rich. You bet. Godspeed to you, sir. All right, folks, Open Phone America is coming up right now. Don't go anywhere. We're coming right back. that never sleeps 17 miles from madison square garden new york city it's america at night with rich valdez america's favorite late night talk program featuring interesting guests from around the world and calls from across america and now here is your host rich valdez Hi there, good evening, and what's up, America? I am Rich Valdez, Valdez with an S, at Rich Valdez on all of the social media. Our telephone number, if you want to join us in this third hour of the program, this Tuesday night, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. And we've talked about the speaker's race. We've talked about the polling problems that Biden has. We've talked about the polling prowess that Trump has. We've talked about uh, the conflict in in Gaza. We've talked about so much, so much that's been out there. And, of course, anything that you want to bring to the table, uh, because, of course, this is your hour to sound off open phone America, a time-honored tradition here on this program. And, um, again, that dates back to 1978, the days of Larry King um, maintained by Jim Bohannon, the late, great Jim Bohannon, for three decades. And we're going to do the same thing here together tonight. Uh, 833-4-VALDEZ is the phone number. And I want to get into a couple of calls. Of course, we also talked about Joe Biden, right? Joe Biden seems to be faced with the question, should he stay? Should he go? The polling doesn't look good for him. It reminds me of that old song. I think it's by The Clash. That's right. I think Joe Biden's asking America, darling, you got to let me know. Should I stay or should I go? I don't know if Joe Biden's doing that or not, but he should be. And I want to get you guys to weigh in on that. I'm going to jump right into the phones tonight because I know there's a lot of people that have a lot of questions. And yesterday evening, uh, I put out an APB on a longtime caller of this program. His name is Gil from Manila, Philippines, because I hadn't heard from him in a while. And we have located him. The deep state did not get him. Gil from Manila, Philippines, is alive and well. Gil, welcome back, sir. Hello. Long time we don't talk. Yes, um, sir. I've been, uh, I've been a sick puppy. I was in the hospital for over three weeks, and I'm recuperating now, and I'm 
starting to get uh, uh, my uh, uh, my health back. Good. Um, Thank I God. have to use a walker, and when I go out, I'm confined to a wheelchair, but I'm getting better. But that's not why I call. You know what's uh, getting you through that, Gil? Your toxic masculinity. That's what's getting you through. Well, I don't know about toxic masculinity, but uh, if um, Robert Kennedy uh, Jr. runs, he's talking about running as an independent on another party, that would just about guarantee a Republican victory in our next presidential election. Sounds good to me. What old man's thoughts. I tend to agree with you. And uh, you had a guest on uh, last week, uh, a nice lady who was an expert (laughs) on finding your, uh, your perfect, a long-term relationship on the Oh, internet. yes, a matchmaker and dating and relationship coach, Jennifer Stiers. All right. Well, I'm an old guy, and uh, having uh, had lots of relationships, um, I would recommend if I were uh, a 45-year-old guy, like someone we know, uh, <laughs> I'd find... Someone here, because the women here are different. In this country, there's no divorce. You're married, you're married for life. You may become estranged and not live together, but you're legally married until you die. This is the only country in the world that's like that, except for the Vatican. So women here have a different attitude when they get married. They think it's forever. And, uh, if I were looking for the perfect mate, I'd try to find an optometrist because you can bring an optometrist from here and uh, pass the state exam. They could go to work in the United States and uh, have a good daytime job because, you know, most medical professionals have crazy hours. But right. not the optometrist. They work... Uh, 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 nine to five or nine to seven, and have plenty of time off to enjoy with their partner. That's what I would do if I were forty-five, living in the United States. Well, you know, it's not a bad idea. Uh, you know, on that show, I was mentioning that I've been dating a girl for a few months. I like her a lot, and uh, and you know, she kind of she would pass for a Filipino. She kind of looks Asian, but I, I'll say this. If if it ever comes to the point of proposal, I'm going to have a destination wedding and I'm going to get married in the Philippines to make sure we're nipping this thing in the bud. How's that sound, Gil? Well, that sounds good. But the thing is, the law only replies here. If you both live in the States, you can, of course, get a divorce. But if you live here, you can't. Ah, I see. There's a caveat there. Now, let me ask you, Gil, moving on from from dating and relationships and everything else we've been discussing, um, what are your thoughts on Biden? Does does Biden make it? Does he run in 2024? Does he bail out before? Uh, does he face off against Trump or whoever the Republican is, which I believe is going to be Trump? What say you? I think, I think Dr. Uh, Jill Biden ought to have a nice talk with her husband and say, you know, Maybe it's time to call it quits. 
and uh, see who the uh, Democrats want to nominate for a presidential candidate. I don't think it's going to be Vice President Harris. Kim uh, Mala, it is. It's not going to be her. Yeah, Kim Mala Harris. Uh, but uh, she was almost insurance that he would never be uh, impeached, impeached because people were afraid <laughs> what she would be as president. So it's going to yeah. be an interesting next uh, uh, 16 months. For sure. I'm going on 20 years of observing politics. And I got to tell you, this is one of the most uh, interesting presidential election presidential elections I've seen to date. Gil, thank you for the call. You're one of my favorite old timers. Great to hear from you. I wish you nothing but the best. And uh, I agree with you that Jill Biden should have a conversation with Joe Biden. And I also think that Jill Biden should maybe find herself a Filipino optometrist that can help her see things a little better, because I think she doesn't see things straight to begin with. Gil, you're a gentleman and a scholar. I appreciate your brother. Thank you very much. You bet. All right, folks, we continue with the rest of your calls and more. We've got calls from Wilmington, Delaware, Evergreen, Montana, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and more coming in right now, 833-482-5337, 833-4-VALDEZ. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Call now, 833-4-VALDEZ. That's 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. That's Valdez with an S. things. Um, Look, um, uh, we have not seen uh, any credible uh, threats. I know there's been always questions about uh, credible threats. uh, And so I just want to make sure that that's out there. But look, uh, Muslim and those perceived uh, to be Muslim have endured a disproportionate uh, number of hate-fueled attacks. And certainly President Biden understands that many of our Muslim Arab Arab Americans and Palestinian American loved ones and neighbors are worried about the hate being directed at their communities. As if there were a proportionate number of hate-fueled attacks. The things that people say, I really feel like people don't think before they speak. I get what she's saying, but uh, really, a disproportionate number. I mean, should there be a proportionate number? What's the right amount of number? What's the right amount of hate-fueled attacks, KJP? You know, and she didn't stop there. When they asked her, they pressed her a little bit more on anti-Semitism, and she just dodges the question. Check this out. 
I know uh, John Kirby addressed the protests on college campuses, and I appreciate that the president respects First Amendment rights to protest, but does the president view anti-Israel protests and sentiment on college campuses as anti-Semitism? So look, I'm not going to get into what's happening across the country and at different universities. I'm not going to get into the specifics. As the admiral said, the First Amendment right, right? That's what something, a peaceful protest, is really uh, part, of, part of our democracy, being able for folks to to uh, to be able to express their feelings. I'm not going to get into any uh, uh, you know specifics on that. The president has been very clear in wanting to make sure that uh, Jewish Americans, wanting to make sure that Arab Americans, Muslims are protected here. So that's KJP again, just dancing around the questions uh, when it comes to anti-Semitism and whatnot. And I, again, I don't expect more from her, but it, it it's not a good look at all. Anyway, I want to get to your calls. Let's go to Brooklyn, New York, listening to uh, WFAS. Let's check in with Alex. Go right ahead. Hey, Richie, I wanted to comment about that cut because uh, now today she said she didn't understand the question. She didn't like really hear what the question was. But I don't get what she, you know, didn't hear. I mean, if she didn't know what the question was at all about, she should have said like, what are you saying? But the person that asked the question said anti-Semitism straight there. Um, and so she should have responded to the anti-Semitism. And I think at the beginning she was because she said there are no credible threats. And I think that was her trying to downplay what, you know, the anti-Semitic situation we have here in this country. Sure. Um, and I think that's what was going on. But then she tried to switch it over to saying that we do have a problem with, you know, Muslims in this country being threatened. And, and she did that with the other question that you also played where she was again asked, you know, about anti-Semitism on the college campuses. And she made sure to, you know, say equalize the, you know, danger that Muslim have here in the country to what Jews have here in the country. And, uh, you know, I think in this current circumstance, it's a totally different ball game. The kind of hatred Jews are getting here, the the spike of anti-Semitism you're seeing in colleges, you don't really see uh, very much hate in the United States over these last few weeks against Muslims. I mean, I don't think you should see, but you see it against Jews and doesn't seem like she's very interested in defending them. You just look at the numbers, 51 percent of uh, hate crimes here in this country are, you know, against Jews. Ten percent are against Muslims. But uh, I guess she didn't want to understand the question because maybe she's also pro Hamas, maybe. Yeah, well, this is my thinking. I mean, clearly we're looking at a situation right now in real time. October 7th, um, this attack on Jews, attack on the state of Israel. And that's what everybody's talking about, right? They're not talking about just general things that are happening in happenstance or the attacks against Muslims or those perceived to be Muslim in uh, in the wake of the 9-11 attacks uh, 20 some odd years ago, right? And those things happened. But today, as it stands now, people that are Jewish were slaughtered in a gruesome fashion houses torched, babies torched, beheaded. And and to, to be so flippant in her comments and to to respond with, you know, it's Muslims that are receiving a disproportionate amount of hate-fueled attacks, I think is one of the craziest things I've ever heard. And it doesn't mean that there's no violence against Muslims. It just means that, A, as I mentioned before, what is the uh, appropriate number of hate-fueled attacks? And B, how do you ignore the elephant in the room when we're clearly talking about 
the attack from Hamas on Israel. I think it's just uh, not it's not just semantics. It's it's her literally obfuscating the uh, obfuscating the question, uh, dancing around it and not trying to answer it. Lamentably. Yep. And, you know, she usually reads off the notebook that she has there with the question answers or she says, ask somebody else, because that's not her job. She's not the press secretary at certain points in time. So she doesn't want to <laughs> right. answer the question, but she should have just read it from the notebook. I mean, it says there that there's, uh, you know, possible threats of anti-Semitism and, you know, there's a lot of hatred in the college campuses against Jews. And she could have just read it from the notebook, but she was so determined, I guess, to make this about Muslims as opposed to Jews. And it kind of shows really, you know, where she stands. And uh, I don't know. Because she usually isn't so, you know, direct in answering a question, and and especially when she's making it up like that and flipping things around, she usually reads off the notebook, but she deliberately did not do that here. Yeah, good point. Thanks for the call, brother. Alex, good talking to you like always. Uh, Let's uh, continue here. I want to go to, let me see, where did my screen go? Here it is. Um, Let's go to Dan. Chicago, listening on WGN. Go right ahead. Well, thank you. Uh, I was listening uh, yesterday to the interview with Joe Gilbert, who made the uh, film uh, regarding uh, Michelle Obama. And he was uh, portrayed as this deep uh, guy who does all the analysis. I'm not the biggest Michelle fan, but right off the bat, and he his interview was full of inaccuracies. And I don't even know her background that well, but living in Chicago. Well, let's take them one by one. I'm no expert on Michelle Obama either, but what what part of it was inaccurate? Well, here's the first one. It's, it may sound minor, but it really caught me. When he said, well, she didn't really grow or live in Chicago. She lived in this Lake Michigan community of South Shore. Well, he's right. She lived in South Shore. But anybody who's done more than one minute's worth of research knows that South Shore is a community well within the city of Chicago. Now, that may seem minor, but that kind of set the tone. Then he went on to say, so that's the first one. Another one he made it sound like she had this uh, silver spoon in her mouth. Uh, I don't know if you or your listeners know her background that well, but her father worked for the water department in Chicago. Uh, That's not exactly a silver spoon. And partly she knew uh, Jesse Jackson's family because she went to school with Jesse Jackson's daughter. And then going on, he talked about, he made it sound like she had a big uh, part of Cabrini Green being uh, knocked down. Cabrini Green, for your listeners, was public housing that had been debated for many years that it was really a dangerous area. And it wasn't good for the residents, and it was, it was hotly debated. I'll leave it at that. And All right. Was- good points. The music means I have to go. Uh, thank you for your input. Uh, again, I, I wouldn't know one way or the other uh, if you know if, if she was born with a silver spoon or not. I can only judge her by what she said and what she's done, and that's enough for me to know that I don't want her being president. But thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. Keep the calls coming in. 
We're going to get to the rest of your calls and more straight ahead. Don't go anywhere. 833-482-5337. 833-4-VALDEZ. It's Open Phone America, and we're coming right back. America. Welcome back. We've got lots of calls and we're going to get to all of you right now. I want to just remind you, we're talking about should Biden stay? Should Biden go? What's going on with the latest in the Middle East? And is masculinity toxic? Um, I don't think so. Uh, but we're going to get into that right now. Let's see. Where do we go now? We go to Linda, Albany, New York, WGDJ. Go right ahead. Uh, yes. Can you hear me? Loud and clear. Go right ahead. Okay. Um, thanks for taking my call, and thank you for trying to get the truth of things out. Um, I can thank believe you. it when so many college students have been so duped as to doing all these demonstrations on behalf of the terrorists. Uh, it's just so shocking and uh, scary. Yeah, I agree with you, Linda. It, it is scary. And it was interesting. We talked about that earlier with John McLaughlin, the pollster. And uh, looking at the um, there was a Harvard-Harris poll that showed that a growing number of 18 to 24-year-olds and the, uh, I think, 5,000 people or 6,000 people that they interviewed for that poll uh, felt that um, it was um, okay for Hamas to attack Israel the way that they did because of a dispute over land or whatever their dispute was over. And, and to me, I'm thinking you could fight about a lot of things and I'm not uh, disputing why they should fight. I don't think they should fight, but they're fighting and that's that. But I don't think you should go and burn down, um, you know, um, little children, right? Their homes and, and burn them as well. I mean, that, that's absolutely crazy. And uh, I just, I don't see how we, we, we can sanction that. <laughs> how does anybody sign off on, on that type of warfare it's beyond me. Great point, Linda. Big shout out to everybody in Albany, New York, WGDJ. Let us continue. Uh, where do I want to go? Let's go to Doc Wilmington, Delaware, WDEL. Doc, go right ahead. You're on with Rich Valdez. Rich, thanks again for a great show, buddy. A couple of comments, three comments on three topics real quickly, and then I'll, then I'll be quiet and let your other guests talk. I don't think Joe Biden... It's going to be the nominee for one reason. You're a New Yorker, um, born and bred. You know John Katsimatidis, I believe his name is, uh, who has the show on one of your major stations, Cats at Nine or Cats at Ten. A couple years ago in the New York Post, I read an article about him. I get him on the radio down here in Delaware. I listen to him all the time. He he had Ed Ed Randell, former governor of Pennsylvania, on, on, on his show. Ed Randell said at that time the ticket would be that Joe Biden would drop out. He said the ticket would be, and I, I agree with this, 
uh, Hillary Clinton at the top, but VP Michelle Obama. That'll be the ticket in 2024, and I agree with that. Um, I think that's the way the Democrats want to go. They're going to give the, the, somebody on Wall Street will give Joe and the Kamala a, a golden package, and they'll, they'll roll into the sunset. Second point, you, second <laughs> and third points. You you had a couple of factual errors last night on your show. Miss Gabriel is a wonderful caller, and uh, and I have her book about her life. It's fantastic. But she's wrong about who blew up our barracks in Beirut. That was done by Force 17, Yasser Arafat's personal bodyguard force, who do terror attacks for him when they are in the PLO and assassinations and sabotage. Force 17 did that. His blood didn't do it because his blood is loath to take on the United States directly. Lastly, Jimmy, whom I love as a caller, but he's off to all of this communist stuff. The Russians are are, are <laughs> allied with the Iranians right now as, as a matter of convenience. But you got to remember the Savak under the Shah was a terrible, ter- terrible torture agency, his intelligence force. They they wiped out the Communist Party in uh, Iran. What was left of it was wiped out by the mullahs now. The mullahs are running it, and they are they are they are in, allied with the Russians, but they're they're in in with the Arab oil states and our our people that we say our friends, particularly. Uh, Rich, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan are playing a double game. That's the facts. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I think Jimmy's comments were were guided more towards the the Marxist philosophy that uh, and, and tactics that that they use. And with uh, regard to Brigitte Gabriel, I think she mentioned that it was um, Fatah that was the precursor to Hezbollah that that claimed responsibility, but ultimately, uh, I think our country not just her, um, has acknowledged historically, like State Department uh, websites and whatnot, uh, all mention um, Hezbollah, or Hezbollah, rather, as um, as the, the culprit. Uh, and again, I'm not saying that you're wrong or not. I'm just saying that's that's what the, the history that I was able to find um, indicates. And uh, I, I, I don't disagree with you. Uh, I have no reason to believe that 417 special ops commandos that worked for the PLO uh, were not, in fact, double-dipping as Hezbollah in that attack and uh, or calling themselves Islamic Jihad or whatever it was. So, um, yeah, interesting, you know, uh, I think a a distinction without much of a major difference to a layman like me, but I appreciate your call nonetheless, Doc. Thank you for always listening and for your kind words. Very much appreciated. Let us continue. Let's go to... Bedford, Indiana, WBIW. I'm checking with Sarah. Sarah, you're on with Rich Valdez. Go right ahead. Hey, great talk to you. I want to preface this by saying this is not my mindset. I'm going to try to explain the left-wing mindset in how everybody is so surprised that they've turned a blind eye to the anti-Semitism. The thing is, with the modern left, while the traditional left used to support American Jews and, and help them combat and be sympathetic in the fight against anti-Semitism, you realize the modern left is thoroughly racist, okay? White people are at the bottom, unless you're leftist, then you're okay. Uh, but they have this little caste system that they have. So if Jews get attacked by a white person, then that's anti-Semitism. It's horrible. But if the attackers are non-white, then they got to consult a little codex. And now that we have a large number of Muslim diaspora from various countries who are not white, um, suddenly it's okay. And in fact, this is my personal opinion that the left is going to throw the Jews under the bus in favor of the anti-Semitic Muslims 
because they want to they want to pander they want to cater to those people. So suddenly that that's why you're you're seeing them downplay the horrible atrocities which occurred in the attack in Israel. Like I say, it's not what I think is right, but you have to understand the mindset of the left. Right, the uh, intersectional left. I, I I get exactly what you're saying, and I think it's a very interesting point uh, because while there's competing interests, right? So, I mean, we saw earlier this year, we saw um, uh, various Muslim communities rising up against the the radical far left, the progressive left, with their push for the LGBTQ movement and and um, the hypersexualization of middle school and um, and other K through three curriculums and whatnot. And that's not in alignment with a group of people that are very conservative because they're religious conservatives, the Muslims. And uh, it's interesting because they're, they're going to be at, at wit's end, right? So they have this agreement on where there, there may be uh, agreement on, on the Palestine issue, but there's disagreements on other issues. And it's, uh, it's an interesting conundrum to see how that's going to play out. But this goes back to a lot of what Jimmy from Brooklyn, the caller, had mentioned, is that this is the Marxist playbook, right? The idea is to divide and conquer, to take every group you can and get them to turn against each other one way or another way. Even if there is a wedge issue that may bring them together at some point, ultimately you just keep wedging. You keep wedging to, to break them up so that you have factions against factions. This is how they're, they manage. If the, the people are in turmoil, the government is the solution. And then you, you hail to the altar of government the the answer and provider the end all the be all and and this is the Marxist way, so uh, I think you're you're spot on uh, in in your commentary and I think um, th- that that's truly the the crux of it and even what Doc was just saying same thing right well it, it it's not so much about uh, this one being right or that one being wrong in so much as just following the philosophy of the Marxist to get turmoil. And, and that's all they do. Years ago, I, I read um, a series of articles, big articles, like 50, 60 page articles, like, you know, scholarly um, pieces that discussed why the, the radicals use fire. Like why, you know, the, 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 the ongoing joke from May of 2020, um, fiery but peaceful, right? The, the, the reporters say it's a mostly peaceful protest. Uh, I think it was Ari, Ari Melber from MSNBC. And the buildings are burning <laughs> to the ground behind him. And the, the question of, of, of all of that is that the fire creates confusion and chaos. And that is literally the Marxist playbook. They want to create chaos. They want to create division and they want to burn everything to the ground so they can come in and kind of bring it all together in the name of whatever they're pushing, which oftentimes is some sort of universal government system that brings everybody together. Uh, you know, I guess capitalism says a rising tide lifts all boats and communism is like a, a burning building brings everybody down to the same level. We could all be broke together uh, and minus the oligarchs. So uh, great, great, great assessment, Sarah. Thank you for your call. Folks, I'm going to pause right here. Coming back to your calls from North Carolina, Missouri, Michigan, Montana, Pittsburgh and more. Don't go anywhere. This is America night with rich valdez
All right, let's go to Bill in Jefferson City, Missouri, KTTR. Bill, welcome. Listen to several people uh, discuss Michelle Obama and the Democratic Convention that comes to Chicago in 2024 in the summertime. And I got thinking of Harry Truman and how he ascended uh, into uh, at the convention. So lots of funny things can happen at the convention. And I'm thinking... I hope the Republicans are prepared. The new Speaker of the House, whoever he is, uh, can mm-hmm. give us something that uh, uh, can can keep Michelle from doing what she is such a schemer at doing. Yeah, you know, I, I think you're right. I've been hearing it for a long time. I mean, in the last election, I heard, no, it's not going to be Biden. It's going to be Obama. They're going to pull a switcheroo at the end. I do believe uh, something that... Um, Mr. Gilbert mentioned last night it was true. I do believe Michelle Obama would be an, a, a formidable candidate for the Democrats to run. I really do believe that. And his opinion was very different from mine. Mine was the Obamas are a living life. They, they get to talk about politics whenever they feel like talking about it, but they could make money like private people in the private sector, which you can't necessarily do when you're in the White House because of, you know, all sorts of, you know, ethics and blah, blah, blah. And all of that. But um, he believes that they're political animals and they want to be involved in government directly. I believe they want to be involved and influence government indirectly because they can make movies and hundred million dollar deals and all of these things. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's my own naivete. I don't know. But um, I think you're right. I think that we're going to see a very interesting thing uh, with the uh, convention in Chicago. Um, Why not? Perfect time to say, we're, we're going to do this again. We're going to do Obama again, this time with a woman. And I think that's a powerful message for a lot of people that are left-leaning. And uh, Michelle Obama versus Trump sounds like a fight uh, that I'd watch on pay-per-view, right? <laughs> Definitely. I'm not looking to see uh, Trump-Biden again. I've seen that fight already. I've seen Trump-Clinton already. So I think that is an interesting fight. And Trump-Harris, that would just be abuse. Bill, great call. Excellent uh, insight there. I appreciate that. Let's continue. Let's go to uh, Matt, Moorhead City, North Carolina, 80 miles north. Go right ahead. Hello, Rich. Excellent memory you have. I woke up just in time for your show. <laughs> Buenos dias. Amazing. I just had a, uh, a little nap. Um, but anyway, I wanted to say, like I told Tom, your call screener, John McLaughlin was very informative, number one. Three quick points, sir. And number two, guilt mm-hmm. in the Philippines, they cut off the beginning of the conversation, this local channel. And, and But then it was very good and entertaining. And number three, I, amongst millions of Americans, are tired of Biden bankrupting this country. I, I bought a can of starting food. It was $3.39 last year. Monday was $6. Yeah. You, you know, and... People, anybody who thinks that you're overstating things, when you go shopping and you're paying double for a product and you buy 10 products and they're all double, you can't say inflation's going down, right? You could say whatever you want. It's affecting my pocket in a different way. And I've got to tell you, I mean, the only thing I've seen gone down since that time where we had that big chicken fiasco was the price of chicken that went up really high and and kind of normalized. But outside of that, I'm still spending a bunch of money on gasoline uh, when I fill up my truck. Uh, and again, I'm not complaining that I'm spending. I, I've always had a car that cost a lot to fill up. 
But I mean, just, I don't know, a month ago, it was 84 bucks, 86 bucks to fill up the tank. Now it's 114. And that's not good. That's not good for anybody because it eventually puts a damper on things, on on the local economy, on the economy at large. And, and I think you're right. Biden has made so many moves to financially destabilize this country, to uh, destabilize the security of our country at our southern border, and to destabilize any peace that was brought about by Trump with uh, his uh, America first slash peace through strength policies. And it's it's sad to say the least. Matt, thanks for the call. I got to take a quick pause right here. Coming back for the speed round with Frank, Bill and Ken. Don't go anywhere. This is America at Night with Rich Valdez. is America at Night with Rich Valdez. Ken, Lansing, Michigan, WILS. Go right ahead. Hey, Rich. Great show as always. Uh, Thank you. I am just thoroughly bewildered as to the state of our young people in this country where over half of them think that Hamas was justified in doing what they're doing. I sure as hell hope we can turn this around in a hurry, buddy. Have a good night. Thank you, Ken. You're 100% right. It's a very bad situation when we have uh, generations of Marxists, leftists that that believe this stuff, and they've now taught it to younger people who are going to go out there and take it to the streets. And uh, there's a good piece that maybe tomorrow I'll, I'll share with you guys on the long relationship between uh, certain leftist movements in the United States and um, and Hamas, believe it or not. Um, thank you for your call, Ken. Let's go to Bill, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, KDKA, quickly. Bill, going once. Bill, going twice. Frank, Evergreen, Montana. Let's go to Frank on KOFI. Frank, go right ahead. We're taking it home with you, brother. Hi, Rich. I'm trying to keep it short here. Uh, I was going to go on to a big speech about the covid Brain fog, memory loss, and fatigue from the symptoms of long COVID. It's, uh, new research just came out yesterday, yeah. uh, a few hours ago. It's, it's really interesting. Where we really need more tryptophan from Turkey mm. and things like that to, uh, uh, to because we have a depleted serotonin level in our blood uh, system. It uh, uh, affects our brains and everything. So it's. Not just brain fog for old people. I mean, all young people can have right. this. Right, brain fog from old people. Brain fog from the lack of tryptophan because of long COVID, and ultimately Thanksgiving will cure long COVID. I think that's what you're saying, Frank. I appreciate you, brother. Big shout out to KOFI in Montana, and folks, that's it for me tonight. Keep it locked right here for the next show, and hasta la próxima. Until the next time, take care. Good night, and God bless. I'm Rich Valdez. 
Yet My Let Show showcases the greatest peak performers sharing their journey, knowledge, and thought leadership. This is one of the all-time best pieces of advice ever given on the show. Actor Rain Wilson. The number one thing that psychologists point to with young people of why they are struggling so much in this mental health epidemic is they don't have resilience. So how do you build resilience if you don't understand suffering itself? The Ed My Let Show is available on YouTube or wherever you listen. 